Hello and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 71, recorded on September 16th, 2018. I'm Joe. And I'm Wes. Thank you very much for joining me again, Wes. Chris is back at home and recovering, but we thought we'd better let him rest a little bit more. He should be back for LUP on Tuesday, but uh, for now you've got me and Wes again. So thank you very much. Let's start with Fedora and Fedora Silverblue. And they want people to take it for a test drive. Yeah, that's right. And, well, you might not really know what Silverblue is just from the name. It used to be called Fedora Atomic Workstation Special Interest Group. That's a mouthful. Silverblue is a little bit easier. And it's a it's kind of a new type of Fedora based off OS tree. Yeah, they say it has RPM OS tree at its core to provide fully atomic upgrades, which we've seen on Project Atomic on the server, but now... We're seeing this on the desktop, which is really cool. And it's not kind of ready for full-time use, is it? It's not kind of daily driver ready. And they are pretty clear about that, hence why they want people to test it. Yeah, that's right. So Thursday, September 20th, 2018, Team Silverblue and Fedora QA are holding a test day for users to try out and test this new workstation variant. Anyone can help make changes in Fedora. Be a part of it if you want to see this released. They do say that you don't have to necessarily do it on that day. They're just kind of trying to focus everyone's attention on that. But if you don't have time to do it on that day, you can do it before or afterwards. Um, and there's a wiki where you can enter your results from the various tests that you have to do. And obviously, Flatpak is a huge part of this because that's how they are delivering the desktop apps. So they can keep the core completely separate from the applications. And as we know, Flatpaks can now auto-update. So this is the future as far as I can see. It's not quite the present, but it's just around the corner, I think. Yeah, you know, really, RPM, OS tree, and all the related technologies, I'm, I'm pretty impressed by it. And some of their goals are exciting, like support package layering for OS extensions in GNOME software, support rebases and rollbacks. They've got some good details about why having a smart, integrated system like this is, offers some unique alternatives that you can't quite get with other snapshot systems, say, like, if you're using ZFS and taking snapshots before you upgrade. The operating system doesn't really know about, you know, how that works. You're doing that at a different layer. But with systems like Silverblue, well, you have a lot more options. Can you imagine being able to just go roll back a major, all of your OS packages, and then your applications are separate in Flatpak? So that seems like a really robust system. We've seen something similar, haven't we, with Endless OS, but that's very much aimed at a different market. That's not aimed at developers and people who want the latest of everything. It's kind of aimed for more developing markets and low-end hardware, whereas this Fedora Silverblue is very much aimed at the latest hardware, developers, sysadmins. So it's good to see a kind of different take on the same kind of underlying technologies. It seems like a trend in the way that we're developing software. Well, something I'm looking forward to using in the near future is Nano 3.0, which has been released, called Water Flowing Underground. Sort of a strange name for it. And Nano, it's not a big and exciting project. It's just something that I use almost every day to edit config files on servers. I think you use Nano as well, don't you, Wes? When I have to. And, you know, Joe, <laughs> if you would just switch on over to Arch, uh, you'd have it already. I played around with it just earlier today. I'm not a huge Nano user, if only because I've been using VI for so long, my fingers are broken now. Uh-huh. But some of the things that they've included in 3.0, well, they're just really nice, especially for a fundamental part of an operating system. Things like reading files 70% faster, 
a bunch of new shortcuts. I tried out Control-Delete or Control-Shift-Delete, which erase the next word or the previous word. Now, of course, those are old hat for us VI users, but it's a pretty big usability improvement in Nano. Is it enough to tempt you to switch to Nano? Definitely not, but it is (laughs) enough to convince me to get a little better at using Nano when I'm on a system that doesn't have VI. Yeah, I don't have very complex requirements. That's why I've always just stuck with Nano and never bothered to learn um, VI or Emacs or anything like that. But um, it's good to see that it is being actively developed and there are major improvements happening, like you said. So I don't know, I don't think I need to move off it anytime soon. No, and it's important to have just an easy-to-use. You know, VI is great when you use it, but it's like any other power tool. If you just need to, you know, change one config file, you don't need to learn a whole new paradigm of text editing. Nano fills that gap very nicely. Well, speaking of filling gaps, we know that Dropbox is going away for a lot of people who don't use EXT4, and Nextcloud seems to be the obvious replacement for that. And they've had a release this week as well. Nextcloud 14 has come out. There's lots of good things to talk about with NextCloud 14, but in particular, it seems like they're really focusing on accessibility. Yeah, there don't seem to be kind of huge new features here. It just seems to be a focus on usability and refinement of the user experience. And you mentioned the accessibility there. They've massively improved the experience for people who are using screen readers. And that's something that a lot of people don't think about. And it is good to see them implementing this stuff to make it usable for everyone. I think that makes a huge difference, especially, you know, oftentimes those groups aren't large enough for proprietary applications to really feel a need to design around them. But when we're trying to build, you know, free and open source software to, to for all of humanity, that is a really important group of people that deserve to use that software just as much as everyone else. And we need to have a good culture to encourage those designs. And it's great to see NextCloud taking those concrete steps. I tried to install this on a droplet today and I just got this weird error and I just didn't have time to deal with it. So I just did snap install nextcloud dash dash edge and boom, it just sets it all up. So if you do want to just quickly test it out, I would strongly recommend the snap because it just makes it so much easier. It sets all the database and everything up for you. Oh, that is so handy. One other thing I saw here is they've also done a bunch of improvements to make small screens like mobile or tablet devices work, which as someone looking to maybe move over to NextCloud in the near future, that's an essential component for me. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's been a criticism of mine before that it's not as mobile friendly as something like Dropbox or Google Drive, where it's just a first class mobile experience. And I don't think we're there yet with NextCloud, but it's good to see that they're moving in that direction, that they are starting to take note of the fact that real people, for want of a better word, not developers and you know, the, perhaps the people who are listening to this show, most people don't use computers very much anymore. They use their phones and tablets. So I think if you're going to have mass adoption of this, you do need to focus on that. Yeah, and it's just so handy, right? If you can easily go, I know so many people, right? You have Dropbox, you throw a file up there, then you have access to it on your phone, which might otherwise be a somewhat hostile environment to doing complex workflows. NextCloud could be a big asset. Well, Mozilla are certainly focusing on mobile. And this week they announced that Firefox Focus is going to move over to the Gecko engine. It's pretty exciting, really. And if you're not familiar with Firefox Focus, well, it's basically private browsing as an app, it automatically blocks ads and trackers, and it looks like they even have just an instant history erase button in this newest release. Yeah, it's a really great little browser. It's super fast because obviously blocking all of that tracking stuff is just going to make your experience much better. It's not really full-featured enough to use as a 
main browser went on, I think. And I wonder how much of that is because it was based on WebView before. And maybe it's going to be a nicer experience now they're moving over to Gecko. Certainly seems like it. Gecko is the existing Firefox rendering engine. But up till now, Firefox Focus was just using WebView, which is built into Android, doesn't have a lot of features. They really kind of expect you to use the Android APIs and not the web APIs with WebView. Mozilla has done a ton of work to refactor Gecko into what they're calling Gecko View, which is Gecko packaged as a reusable Android library. Which sounds like an excellent win for open standards rather than having to use the Android APIs and everything. This is web standards which anyone can use, and they're encouraging people to bake this into their applications, aren't they, the uh, Gecko View? Yeah, they've also released Android Components, a collection of independent, ready-to-use libraries for building browsers and browser-like applications on Android, and now Gecko View is just one of those components. Now, this is going to be a fairly slow rollout of the Gecko View version of Firefox Focus, so that means that the app that you download is going to be bigger because it's going to have both for a while, but they're going to slowly test it with more and more people until hopefully it's going to become default fairly soon. Yeah, stay tuned. Go give it a try. You can go check, you know, whatever user agent in your browser. If you see Gecko in there, then you know you're using the new Gecko View version. You might wonder why you would want to use this sort of like trimmed down browser, but I think for for people who aren't experts who don't really know how to manage all the complexities that are involved with cookies and tracking everything involved in the modern web today, Focus is just that. It's Focus, it's small, and you know that your privacy is protected because Mozilla cares about it. It is actually in the beta version, so you can test it out straight away if you want to. But moving on to Chrome OS, version 70 is going to bring native network file share support, which is excellent news for people in the enterprise or education markets who want to be able to connect to Windows file shares. It's the continued progression of Chrome OS becoming a big boy operating system. First, it was just for web interfaces. Then we got Android app support, now Linux apps, and finally Windows network shares. I might actually be able to use this in my day-to-day. Now, this feature has been around for a little while. It was first implemented back in March, but only now are they switching on the flag to actually enable it. Yeah, it looks like you should be expecting to see it in the upcoming M70 release, accompanying that and really showing that Google is aiming for enterprises' big installations of Chrome OS, there is going to be a Chrome policy to enable or disable NetBIOS Samba share discovery automatically. By default for non-enterprises, that'll just be there. So when you pop up Chrome OS, you can automatically discover all the shares on your network. If you need more control, well, they've got a solution for you. This does beg the question of what's the point of Chrome OS then? Surely the point of it was that it was so simple. It was just a web browser. There was nothing to go wrong with it. There was nothing to maintain. Security was tight. And as they keep adding more and more features to it, it does make me wonder, well, what sets it apart from just a normal Linux desktop at that point? It has definitely lost its tight focus. Now, they are adding things piecemeal and slowly, and it does seem like they've started with a minimal base and added things on as they could, so that might be better from a management and a security aspect. But the question remains, can they do this without making it feel bloated, and will it still be simple for end users to use? I think that it will, and maybe it's unfair to compare it to a proper Linux desktop because you can do so much more with the Linux desktop. But I do worry about feature creep, and I I worry 
Maybe unnecessarily, really, because I suppose they have to broaden their markets, don't they? And they want to get into enterprise. Clearly, that's what this is about. And they want to appeal to more and more people. And perhaps they have exhausted the market that they already have access to. And they need to implement these new features to be relevant to other markets. And because you can turn this stuff off, it means you can use it as you were anyway. So it's probably not going to affect the existing users. It does feel a bit like Google's exploring around to find out how many features, you know, are just enough to make it usable to a broader audience, but aren't aren't too many. Does it stop here? Will we see more? I guess we wait and see. I think, though, that if they really want to crack the enterprise market, they need to think about longer support times. Just recently, the Chromebook Pixel, the original really expensive one, dropped out of support, and that was after five years. And that's five years since it first came out. Obviously, there would have been people buying them a a year or two into that, which doesn't seem like long enough to me, really. You know, four or five years support. If you look at something like Windows XP, I mean, how long was that supported for? And you look at Red Hat Enterprise Linux, you can get, you know, 10 years. And I think that that surely must be where they need to go next. You know, I wonder, though, because it's coming from the phone marketplace where it's like two, three years of support, five years might seem kind of generous. Well, certainly in the consumer space, yeah. Um, Most people's Windows laptops probably didn't last much longer until they slowed down to the point where they were unusable and people used to go and buy a new one. Now they just buy an iPad to replace it. But I think in enterprise, I don't know, isn't five years... Well, five years sounds about right, but it's not five years, is it, in reality? Because... It's five years since the product is launched, and people don't necessarily get hold of it straight away. And it might be a year or two or maybe even more down the line. And so you're potentially looking at two to three years of actual usable support there. And I I don't think that's going to wash in the enterprise. Yeah, and you do have to wonder, too, especially with such a connected operating system, how usable is it outside of support? Without support, is it really even a good value proposition anymore? Well, I would say certainly not, because that's where the whole security aspect comes from, is staying up to date. And Chrome OS has been so good over the years at updating itself, and it's all been a flawless background thing that no one even notices. Whereas once you get to the end of that support, you're not getting your security updates anymore. It's just unusable at that point. Sounds like, Joe, you're still not sold on Chrome OS. No, I'm not, but I'm definitely not sold on Windows 10. There was a big kerfuffle this week about a feature that Microsoft slipped into a Windows Insider build, but then pulled out of it fairly quickly. So imagine this. You've just set up your new Windows machine. One of the first things I usually do is, well, install the web browser of my choice. You start doing that and up pops this dialogue. Hey there, you already have Microsoft Edge, the safer faster browser for Windows. And then it's got a default there, just open Microsoft Edge. Don't bother installing any of that other open source software that you've got. It's really not a surprise that they removed this straight away, but what were they thinking even trying this in the first place? I mean, okay, it didn't make it into a final release or anything, and it was just a very short experiment. But especially with all the antitrust stuff that they've had in Europe, why would they possibly do this? It does really bring back a bad taste from that era. Now, I think it's fair to say that, you know, Google does some of their own. If you're using another browser on when you're searching Google, they'll often pop up things suggesting that they prefer Chrome. They recommend Chrome to you. But using an online service versus an operating system, to me, I know the industry might think other things, but to me, those still aren't the same thing. 
Now, when I read more into this, I was suddenly reminded of Proton, which is Valve's system for playing Windows games in Steam. And I remember talking about that and speculating, why are they doing this? And then it dawned on me. The reason that this big warning came up in Windows is because it's part of them moving towards an App Store-only system for installing software. You will still have the option, at least for now, to install just random binaries downloaded from the web. But when you install something like Spotify, it then says, hey, why don't you just get it from the App Store? And so perhaps it was Valve seeing this coming that has kind of reignited the fire under Linux and SteamOS and that backup plan that they always had, because that was the primary reason, or at least that's what we all speculated at the time for them coming up with Steam on Linux and SteamOS. It was because Microsoft might go to an iOS-style, no side-loading, everything coming from the App Store system. And this seems to be more evidence of Windows very, very slowly, at least, moving towards that. Yeah, we've already seen some minimal versions that you know have more restrictions placed on them. And Windows has become something of a, a connected internet operating system. Windows 10 versus Windows 7, for instance. Well, it's a, it's a big difference from the old Windows that we all knew and, well, maybe not loved, but we're accustomed to. Yeah, suddenly it kind of all clicked together in my head and it made me realize that Valve are very clever for investing more into the Linux side of their business. So, yeah, well done for seeing that coming. Suddenly it makes sense to me. Well, let's end with some excellent news. And we did talk about this on Linux Unplugged 266, so we'll not talk too much here. But Jupyter Broadcasting has joined forces with Linux Academy. Now, you may have noticed a lack of adverts on shows since the beginning of September. That wasn't a mistake. That wasn't us forgetting to do them. That was part of this merger. Now, I don't know about you, Wes, but I am incredibly happy about this. It means that I can now work on Jupyter Broadcasting basically full-time. And you've switched your job over, haven't you? Now you're doing podcasting full-time. That's right. And yeah, I could not be more excited about this. We've all been putting a lot of work into this on both sides of the fence. And really, Jupiter Broadcasting and Linux Academy were already pretty well aligned. We both care a huge amount about Linux, open-source technologies, and inspiring people to use those and create awesome stuff. Now we can leverage all of that together, create much better content, have more focus, and inspire the community. Now, nothing is really going to change apart from the lack of adverts because, well, they liked what we were doing and they want us to keep doing it. But one thing that has changed is user error has come back with a new set of hosts, including me and Alan Pope, better known as Popey, and Daniel Foray from Elementary. And also a fourth seat, which was empty on episode 48, which was the kind of comeback episode. But that will be kind of rotating. Chris will come along sometimes. Maybe even you, Wes, maybe other friends of the show, basically whoever we want. So do check it out, error.show slash 48. It was good fun. I enjoyed it a lot. I think it's a, it's a great show and it's a great rebirth. And it's just a sign of more good things to come as a result of this merger. Yeah, I am really excited about this. It's a huge opportunity for me and for us all. And it means that we can open source some of the code that makes the backend stuff work and also help out the community. So do check out episode 266 of Linux Unplugged, where we speak about it quite a bit more. 
Now, if you don't want to miss that or any of the exciting stories we cover here on Linux Action News, well, subscribe. Head on over to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Joe Rissington. I'm at Wes Payne. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Bye.